Hello, and welcome to this segment of Two Worlds, One Country, here on WEHC and WISC Wise, and also on podcasts, Spotify, Apple, etc., etc. We're thrilled to be partnering with WEHC in the production of Two Worlds, One Country. And I'm even more thrilled this morning to have as my guest a brilliant innovator from just up the road in southern West Virginia, Brandon Dennison. Brandon, among many other things, uh, is a West Virginia native. He has received many awards and honors, including, very interestingly, the J.M. Kaplan Award for Social Innovation, and uh, very well suited to that because, as you're going to hear today, Brandon is among a group of innovators in Appalachia and in rural America who are building better economies and better communities. So we're thrilled to have Brandon here today, and we're going to talk with him a little bit about his own life and about his organization, the Coalfield Development Corporation. Welcome, Brandon. Thank you, Anthony. Happy to be here. And I've looked up to you and your work for many years as well. So uh, innovator to innovator here. Oh, cool. Thank you. Yeah. Young man to old man. (laughs) Okay, great, Brandon. Well, you did grow up in West Virginia. I don't know if you grew up close to where you now live and work or not, but tell us a little bit about that. Uh, yeah, I, I grew up in the Huntington, uh, West Virginia area near uh, Marshall University, where my parents taught. Um, my family, uh, we have quite a bit of uh, timber in our background. We, we're, we're not a coal mining family. Um, we have a family farm in Braxton County, West Virginia, which is right in the middle of the of the state. And we go back uh, eight generations. You mm. see the headstones quite a ways back. And if you include Virginia, you know, the original Virginia right. on my mom's side, we we actually go back even further, you know, uh, closer to the coast. So deep, deep roots in Appalachia. Growing up, even though my family was not directly in coal, it's uh, it's hard to understate just how dominant it is in West Virginia. I mean, you see it goes by on rail cars. It goes by on river barges. It goes by on trucks. You see it on billboards. You hear it on the radio. You see it on the TV. You know, coal keeps the lights on. Uh, coal is West Virginia, you know, was a, was a, a campaign. And so uh, over time growing up, I just really came to understand that a lot of our, our challenges stemmed from being a pretty much a mono economy. Uh, and so those are sort of some of the early seeds for, for Coalfield development. But yeah, long story short, grew up in the Huntington, West Virginia area and, and deep roots in West Virginia and Appalachia. And you're you're not very old. You're in your 30s. How old are you, Brandon? Right. I'm 36. 36. So the fact that that this means that that powerful influence of the coal industry in messaging and communications and sort of cultural identity and the economy we're not talking about the the turn of the 19th and 20th oh, century. No. We're talking about very recent times. It still was uh, extremely impactful. Very recently. And I would even say uh, I launched Coalfield Development in 2010, uh, right out of graduate school. Now, I went to graduate school in Indiana, learned about something called social entrepreneurship and got excited to bring that back to Appalachia. Even in 2010, Anthony, I think coal retained that extreme grip, uh, that extreme power, especially in the southern part of the state, which is why we're called Coalfield Development. We're no, we're in the part of the state that's traditionally known as the coal fields. Right. Very similar um, to where we are just across the border in the southwestern corner of Virginia. Absolutely. It's in many ways, it's an arbitrary or it's a sociopolitical border right. you know, culturally, economically. Yeah, it's it's deep central 
coal fields of Appalachia. Right, right. Um, and uh, yeah, even in 2010, it was almost unimaginable to propose a new that we would need to think about a new economy uh, beyond coal. But in and so this is very recent history to your point, and also it's only very, very recently. I mean, last few years that I think there's been a softening or an opening up to say maybe the coal party really, really is over and we need to think about what comes next. Absolutely. And that's, I definitely want to dig into that here in our interview. It's, it's similar, although much more pervasive and powerful, but quite similar to the influence that tobacco had on farming up until Mm. the really right around 2000 or so, right at the end of the 20th century and into the first couple of years of 2000 was when um, the first time the cooperative extension, the land grants in tobacco areas like Virginia Tech and UT and whatnot started to be open that maybe we should be looking at something else as as farmers' quotas had shrunk dramatically, as profitability had gone downhill, and as the federal program that had um, controlled the supply of tobacco was was clearly on the chopping block. And so all of that going on, but I remember the same things. The bumper stickers on tobacco were, tobacco put my kids through college. But it was this, it was this pronouncement of the importance, rightly so, but at the same time kind of a defensive posture. So, right. so you started Coalfield in 2010, and I look at Coalfield as being one of the uh, most important and, and most innovative of a of a number of social enterprises and, and businesses and organizations that are part of what some folks call a just transition effort. So mm-hmm. I want you to just briefly speak about how you view that. Is that is that the right way to uh, describe the work? And and if so, kind of why? What what are we looking for in a just transition? Well, there is some. Um... There definitely is a movement in, in Appalachia, and it's very much a bottom-up effort. You know, there's not necessarily a lot of state governments that have prioritized the new the new economy in the Appalachian parts of West Virginia, Virginia, Ohio, Southwest Pennsylvania, um, uh, Tennessee, and and maybe a little bit of North Carolina. You know, really the central. I mean, technically Appalachia stretches up and down the East Coast, but right. Central Appalachia. And it's, you know, it's leaders of nonprofit organizations and co-ops and social enterprises and small businesses that we we believe in our soul. You know, it's I mean, it's a calling type of work that Appalachia is an extraordinary place with good people and a vibrant culture and a beautiful landscape. And we believe that we have more to offer than what we've been able to offer and that we can be more than just one thing Um, and that we can have a healthy economy where we don't have to choose between clean air and drinking water and good paying work that in fact, those two things can and should go together. So Appalachian sustainable development has absolutely uh, uh, led the way. There was a group before Coalfield development was center for economic options in West Virginia, Uh, natural capital investment fund. Now the um, partner capital, um, what used to be Mesa, you know, now the mountain association. And then a host of entrepreneurs, you have friends, Park and Lacey have a sustainable farm and, Wayne County, West Virginia, and there's ecotourism businesses popping up. Uh, my friend Terry Salmons in Mingo County, West Virginia. There's we helped start the first solar business in this part of the state, Solar Holler, led by Dan Conan. So it's it is inspiring all these different innovators pushing for a, a new Appalachian economy. It's it's remarkable, and I'm proud to be a one small part of it. 
Um, I don't know that most of us probably didn't. I didn't know the term just transition until a couple of years ago. So I don't know if we would all say, hey, we're a part of a just transition movement. But I think the gist of it holds true, this idea that forms of energy are changing. And as that changes, we should uh, not leave behind the communities that have provided traditional forms of energy, but rather reinvest in those communities so that workers can be made whole and communities can actually become more sustainable and healthier than they were even when coal was booming. That's the uh, just that's the justice just, part of the of the transition. Yeah. That's the justice part. Yeah. Yeah. OK. And so I, I connect with uh, I very much connect with the movement. I, again, I don't know that that's a phrase that's caught on throughout the hills and hollers of the region. No, probably but not. That's the gist of the concept. Yeah, that's that's well well explained for sure. So CDC is in the thick of that, whether whether it's referred to as part of the just transition or not. And and really, what you're about, I I think, is precisely the way you described it. First of all, investing in and and helping to bring out the best, building on the strengths of the communities themselves. And secondly, getting to a point where we don't have to choose, as you said, between clean air and clean water on the one hand and decent jobs on the other. So tell us about how the Cofield Development Corporation, or CDC, goes about making that happen. That's Because that's a tough, tough challenge. Not only, not only in Appalachia, but in the world, we have not until very recently thought of uh, anything other than output and perhaps jobs when we talked about an, uh, building an economy. So this is a new concept beyond Appalachia. How do you guys go about in fleshing that? Yeah, we talk about a triple bottom line, people, planet, profit, You know, pretty much in, in that order. So we mm-hmm. start actual businesses and we do want those businesses to be profitable. But they have a deeper purpose, which is very tangibly demonstrating what this new Appalachian economy can look like. And then we use these businesses to directly employ people who have been marginalized, displaced, or face significant barriers to employment. Uh, More than half of our, we call our trainees, our crew members. Mm -hmm. More than half of our crew members are in recovery from substance use disorder. More than a quarter are justice system involved. And all of them are uh, unemployed, underemployed, or on uh, public assistance. Wow, wow. And so these are folks who are not getting opportunities elsewhere. And, and the point of the business is, to, is to, to reach those people. And the point of the business is to, they're really like economic experiments hmm. to a large extent. Uh, hmm. We're going into communities where coal has been king for a long time. And we're trying to run a tangible experiment to see what else could work here to diversify this local economy. So our first social enterprise was in deconstruction. We would tear down old empty buildings. Appalachia has a declining population that leaves a lot of old empty buildings. They're eyesores, they're safety hazards, they're drains on property values. But usually uh, a municipality tries to get a federal grant to just knock them down. It all goes in a landfill. We hired people to take them apart, local people take them apart piece by piece and then reuse, resell, recycle those materials. Found a buyer out of Brooklyn who did high-end bar restaurant renovations. And, um, you know, we had, so that was an earned revenue stream. We had some some grants to support the social aspects of what we do, but we also had earned revenue to help us be um, financially sustainable. And with that and, first and just, crew- Excuse me, Brandon, just to clarify, when you say the social aspects, I'm guessing that's a lot of the very extensive and very effective 
training that you do for folks who otherwise maybe would have a heck of a time getting a job and keeping a job. Is that right? That's exactly right. So to, to illustrate that, our first crew, um, we started in 2010. I started it. Couldn't raise any money for two full years. It was all volunteer for the first couple of years. Mm. Sweat equity, you yep. might call it. We got a little bit of money through a half, some grant and some loan. My best friend from high school joined me and got our contractor's license. Hired our first crew of three. Uh, one was right out of the um, foster care system and was unemployed. One was right out of the uh, coal, coal industry and had just been laid off. And one was right out of the justice system. Wow. Um, had just come out of incarceration. And we always knew we wanted to have a community college component. So the idea is we're going to work, you know, at least 30 some hours per week doing this deconstruction. Then we're going to enroll this crew in the community college to advance their higher education and try and have some economic mobility, you know, to go on from us and get an even better paying gig. What we realized with that first crew, and this has held true ever since, is that, you know, the work ethic was phenomenal. These guys would show up early and stay way late, you know, if, if you would let if you would let them. Loved work, didn't care to work with their hands, didn't care to get dirty. But the biggest barrier to success is what I call the human element. You know, these guys have been through trauma. Yeah. Um, they had mental and emotional distress. Uh, you know, there was there were some addiction challenges. There were housing challenges, transportation challenges, childcare challenges. All three of them had more than one uh, child. So we slowly fine-tuned this 33, 6, and 3 model to organize the week. And what we realized was to overcome these human challenges, we were going to have to get very thorough and systematic uh, about it. So 33 hours of paid work, it is a paid job. That's a key. You know, it's not just a training program. It's a job and that honors dignity and agency right. in people. Six hours of higher education so that we do believe that those credentials are important over the life of a person's career three hours of uh, personal development. And so that's where we're carving out three hours every week to identify what are barriers, uh, what are issues. And then we have, we bring in a network of social work and counselors to set milestones uh, to slowly but surely overcome those barriers and achieve the goals that people set for themselves. And this model that you've used of 33, six and three has become a, um, iconic in in the circles that we run in because it's so daggone successful. It works. Um, it works so really well. I, I want you to talk a little bit about that. I do need to clarify one thing. You were talking Appalachian when you said we don't care to uh, or they don't care to work. They don't care to get their hands dirty. Just to remind some of our listeners who may not know how Brandon and I talk, that means they don't mind. They don't <laughs> mind to. <laughs> some <you>. people <laughs> will say they don't care. Are you saying they don't want to? So anyway, so here's another interesting aside. We can't go too deep. That going we need a couple of hours. Um, is that just just about everybody says you can't get anybody to work. That is the word on the street like nobody's business. And I have not found that on my own farm. But it sounds like that's not what you're finding with the folks that come into your program, at least not uh, on the whole. Yeah, people want to work on the whole. The reason people aren't accepting available positions, and that's a distinction. Yeah. <laughs> people want to work. The reason they may not be accepting available positions is this human element. The positions don't pay well enough. They don't provide enough flexibility. They There isn't adequate quality child care. Uh, there's a transportation barrier. 
maybe someone's justice system involved and has a parole officer. They have to wait three times a week and the employer can't uh, accommodate that. So I really think this people don't want to work issue. It's it's more on the employers to get more creative and supportive of their workforce. And I think they'd be surprised what they find if they did that, made those changes. Yeah. I really want to move towards some of the larger questions that that this show is about, the rural-urban divide, but there's just so much more to CDC. Let's start with your training program. You've described it. So tell us about the kind of results you get, and and maybe while you're doing that, tell us about the other industries or economic sectors that you're focused on beyond this really interesting deconstruction idea. So we took that model, the 33-6-3 model that we developed in construction. Uh, We also pretty quickly got into construction, uh, building affordable housing, but doing it energy efficient and incorporating green sustainable technology, which is a great training opportunity Mm -hmm. for workers. From there, we helped launch the first solar company in in the area, which evolved out of construction quite nicely. Then we launched a major initiative in local sustainable agriculture called Refresh Appalachia. Regenerative mine land reclamation, so reclaiming former mine lands, but doing it in a way that rejuvenates the soil and, and those ecosystems to, to, to become part of the natural environment, again, from the moonscape that, that they're left in. Um, and then most recently, we've gotten into light manufacturing using reclaimed recycled materials oh, wow. as well. So sustainable businesses, growing sectors where we see potential for good paying jobs for a long time to come across that triple bottom line people, planet, profit. And all of those- Our success rate- I'm sorry, um, sorry, Brandon. All of those businesses, at least the aim, is that they're private sector businesses. They're not government- That's right. Now, some, they will start them in-house as a nonprofit program, Yep. but the long-term goal is eventually be able to stand on your own two feet as a private LLC. Okay, great. You were saying about the results that you're getting. It's about two-thirds of success rate. So going from unemployed- low income to full-time employment and, and greater income than, than when they started wow. and, and advanced education and credentials. So that first crew of three in 2012, uh, two thirds made it, became the first in their family to graduate community college. And, um, you know, some years are a little better, some are a little lower, but actually that two thirds rate has held over time. Oh, that's incredible. To compare that, you know, the average community college completion rate is like 13%. I think the amount of students who start community college and actually finish it nationwide, astoundingly low. And again, that's because of the human element. I believe others. Yeah. And and isn't it also the case that most um, job training programs, I mean, you have all these federally funded programs that are supposed to assist either like workers who've been laid off when factories left or various coal miners, et cetera, all well-intended and, and the money needed. But it seems like in general, their their success rates are pretty low as well. Is that true? Especially in rural areas. Yeah. You know, they're very low. And I think it's because those training programs aren't dealing with the overall economic conditions. And so I think a lot of times we see people getting trained for jobs that don't actually exist. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So um, such a beacon of hope. So one of the things I want to, I want to talk now about the rural urban divide and get your your take on it, your perspective. And and one piece I'm going to start this. You can go any direction you want. Is I think one of the issues of several 
about why so many on the left, meaning liberals, progressives, Democrats, a lot of them urban, but plenty of rural people, fall into the divide is because they actually have, they have a very bleak assessment of rural, rural economy, rural people, rural communities. There's a common th- sort of, even among the people that, that don't dismiss all of us as homophobes and idiots, there's still sort of a pitying thing, like, God, you all, I know, I know you like the old ways, but you know what, you got to come into modernity, and I'd love to help you, you know, through that. It's, it seems to me that, that that very bleak and inaccurate assessment of, of rural being essentially a wasteland is part of why the left has not embraced policies and actions that would actually help overcome the divide. So that, that's a little belief that I have. You can build off that. You can dispute it. But what do you think? I think you're on to something there. In fact, I experienced this um, you know, growing up. I would, our Boy Scout troop would go to different summer camps around the country, you know, Florida, Wisconsin, New York, and Illinois. And uh, people would ask you where you were from. And it would just, more times than not, people would kind of act sorry for me when I would say I was from West Virginia. Sometimes they would make outright demeaning jokes about, oh, I'm surprised you wear shoes or, you know, have you ever seen the TV before? You have more teeth than I would have expected. And somehow thought that was funny. Right. You know, but other times it would be this sense of of pity of, oh, that must be hard to live there, you know, in a place with so much poverty and a place that's so backwards. So that's very real. And I've, you know, I've experienced that that personally. I, there's a sense in, in, in Southern West Virginia and, and probably in other rural places that they, you know, whoever they are, but probably meaning decision makers in cities mm-hmm. don't like us. Mm-hmm. They just don't like us. They don't appreciate what we contribute and they don't think we're very smart and um you know they just sort of feel like we're a problem mm. to be mm. mitigated mm. Mm. and that you know when a lot of liberals propose you know the program after program after program you know i think rural people are hearing like i don't know it's like throwaway money it's like well you know you're losing your jobs and your communities are deteriorating but it's okay we're gonna we're gonna send these checks for these amounts of money and right and, and, and we're going to help you transition. Um, and it just doesn't connect at all. Right. Uh, so it is remarkable, the disconnect. It's two different worlds yeah, to, yeah. to the title of, of your podcast. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I think, you know, everybody, every human being pretty much wants to count for something <laughs> and, and wants the respect that goes along with counting for something, for being valuable, for having something to contribute. And so I think one of the overlooked things in why so many rural people are so pissed off and resentful is because they're tired of feeling like they, everybody else thinks they don't count for anything. They got nothing to contribute. Yeah. And being promised a new government program actually just deepens that sense of, Ah. well, you're no longer valuable to our country, but at least we'll give you a little cash, right. you know, so you, you can your survive. family. Right. That doesn't honor a person's agency. Yeah, yeah. So CDC is not itself, I'd say, preoccupied with overcoming the divide. I, I'm guessing that. But you're, you're too busy building strong economies, creating businesses, and, and helping people who've struggled to actually, as you say, have agency, to be able to take care of themselves and their family. As that work goes on, do you think that what CDC and some of the other groups you mentioned, ASD and 
Mountain Association, et cetera. Do you think that what they're doing can somehow be a vehicle towards overcoming the divide? I do. We have sort of made this strategic organizational decision. You know, you can't do it all. Right. And so our role is to be on the ground, very tangibly running those experiments, directly supporting people. But out of that direct service comes remarkable stories that illustrate, hey, this this transition is possible with the right amount of investment and the right kinds of investment and with the bottom-up community leadership, uh, it is possible. And so we try and use those stories to contribute to the bigger policy change, systems change um, type efforts. So I've testified uh, before Congress multiple times, others on my team have. We served on the National Economic Transition Committee of the Just Transition uh, and and others. So um, we do lend our voice where we can, and we do share the stories uh, where it's helpful. And, um, and you know, I, I have to give credit where it's due. This current administration has given more attention to, to rural Appalachia than any of that I've ever seen, you know, since I've been in, in, in this body of work. And surely some of that comes from the the stories and the drums that we've been beaten from Absolutely. the ground here for many years. Yeah. Yeah. And let's talk about that then as we're, we're kind of approaching the close is maybe you could mention one or two federal initiatives that um, are already in place. And, and if you want one that's kind of pending that you think really do make a difference that, as you say, they're, they're investing, but they're also doing it in the right way. I'm, I'm presuming you mean by putting capacity and power uh, in local hands on the ground. Yeah, yeah. Get it to the community based leaders. Don't let it get gummed up, you know, in the state houses. Right. Right. Um, right. We were part of something called the build back better regional challenge mm-hmm. in the U S economic development administration, us EDA. And um, it was a national competition for place-based economic development. So again, instead of just looking at workforce development or rehabbing one empty factory, it was a chance to put a holistic coalition together to really uh, look at the economy as a whole of a region through a a collaboration of community-based organizations to labor unions, universities, municipalities, uh, and private businesses. And so this move towards place-based economic development, I think is crucial. Um, You know, traditionally our, our national policies, you know, the workforce development program in Manhattan is the exact same (laughs) as the workforce development program in Del Barton, West Virginia. And those are just two different places. You've got to have some flexibility and customization that accounts for the unique challenges of a certain place. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so you're saying that that a number of these Biden administration programs, including that one out of the Economic Development Administration, are allowing local communities to adapt and to make them right for their... Yeah, there's some initial, initial... Pilot programs is where we're at. So my hope on the horizon is that we really double down on these place-based initiatives, see more of that. Um, USDA in particular, you know, I'd like to see some changes there, much more focus on rural capacity building. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of times these funds go to state government, they go to local government, but it's really the community-based nonprofit organizations that are the movers and the shakers 100%, uh, yeah. and can get the hard work done. And I'd like to see more rural dollars flow to the rural community-based organizations. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, when the government redeems its reputation as being something other than a cookie cutter that imposes mm. ideas and solutions on places but is seen as a partner – 
then that too could start to shake loose some of the I love that the resentment. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Listen, I I could go on and on with you, dude. You're so cool. <laughs> Same to you. Same to you. I, I have really, great respect. I, oh yeah. Same I mean, I admire you so much, and it's so exciting that you're just 36. You you are less than half. No, you're just slightly more than half my age. So that means by the time you're my age, the world will be a great place because of you. <laughs> that's, that's the vision, right? <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. I've been so, so fortunate to be speaking with Brandon Dennison, the founder and executive director of the Coalfield Development Corporation, one of the best of many great movers and shakers, innovators, thinkers and doers in Appalachia and in rural America who is building a better home and a better place. Brandon, thanks so much for being part of Two Worlds, One Country. Thank you. Really appreciate it.